You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend all walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Carly. She's got a fucked up story about living with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Hey, Dan. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm sitting here just uh, with, with a headache, trying to fake my way through it, but I think that I can do it. I, I can't help but notice you, 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 you got some new merch. You, you got that uh, Ringling Brothers Circus hat on. You got that at the circus a couple weeks ago? I did get that at the circus as someone who, for just over two years, uh, has not been partaking in alcohol. It's hard for a guy with my look to find hats that fit the way I want them to look that don't just have beer logos on them. So <laughs> I picked myself up a circus hat. I had a good time at the circus. My daughter had a great time at the circus. And uh, this fits the general vibe of eh, I could wear this in a garage that I'm usually okay. looking for. Okay. So what you're saying is we need positively terrible hats. And I will get some up before our episode airs. Wow. Great segue. Making magic happen here. Uh, this, this, this is how is... real professionals do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Carly, are you impressed so far? I am. I'm loving the banter. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. It'll get, you coming it'll get real today. old real soon, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it does get real old real soon, but hopefully not in the next 45 minutes. Um, Carly, uh, we're in, going with the, I'm, I'm going to call you out, going with the single earring look today because the other one, she got the danglies and uh, we, we even commented on them and then they were rubbing up against the mic. So had had to pull one off. Um, but I, I, I think that that still looks, uh, amazing. So, uh, thank I you so much for being here though. Yeah. And I appreciate your willingness to sacrifice fashion for yeah. our podcast. Oh, 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 this is not. Sacrificing. <laughs> I think it looks fantastic. Yes, <laughs> it does. Dan, there's no sacrifice here. This, this might be the new thing. We are starting trends here. Positively terrible hats, one long dangly earring. Um, but can we get some single earrings sold on the website too? <laughs> a little decal, a little positively terrible decal at the bottom. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, 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 Dan, I'll look into that. I, I will look into that. Um, but Carly, uh, you're here to talk about undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And um, you mentioned that it was uh, as a child that it was undiagnosed, that you were growing up with it. And I will sit here and say, that's kind of news to me. I did not know that bipolar disorder was something that uh, – was diagnosed or could be diagnosed as a, as a child. Um, and maybe you can't, I, I don't know, but can we talk about your childhood a little bit? Um, you, what, what, what were you like? I, I, I throw out this broad question to start with. What was young Carly like? Yeah, I love that question. And I also just want to say thank you for having me. Um, I'm really honored to be here. 
And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's definitely a rare thing for children to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And we didn't find out until I was actually 19, but young, young Carly, um, from an outside perspective would have looked like a very normal middle-class child. Um, at school, I was very hyper, uh, you know, it seemed like I did okay in school. I had friends. It seemed like a very normal upbringing, Mm -hmm. but internally, I was really, really struggling. And what you wouldn't see is that at the age of 12, I had actually planned on taking my own life. And that was the biggest thing that played on my mind day in and day out, really deeply struggling with depression. Um, I used to take weeks off of school at a time, um, faking sick because I just wanted to stay in bed and watch TV shows like uh, what I used to watch, like Say Yes to the Dress and just like, you know, bullshit TV. (laughs) Right. Um, because I just, I didn't have the energy to, to get up and, and fake that smile that I wore every day. Um, nobody was aware of this. My parents weren't aware. My best friends weren't aware. My teachers weren't aware. Um, because it's, it can be really easy when you're struggling to, to fake that if you're not really accepting it and, and wanting to be vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm not making light of it, but even even right now when I'm sitting here with a headache, you know, masking is something that we, we all kind of do at times. And when it comes to mental health and, and personality disorders and those types of things, it's a way of just survival. Absolutely. Exactly. Especially at that age. I mean, that's what, that's what makes your parents happy, right? Like the, the good, happy kid that comes home and does what mom and dad needs them to do and, goes and does good stuff at school like i could see very easily how your 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 best option when you're 12 is to is to fake it mm-hmm. did you realize that it was kind of a, a an act or faking i knew that i was unhappy i think i i definitely didn't recognize the severity of it until years later looking back and when i was actually studying psychology and reading about the percentages of people that have suicidal thoughts and the smaller percentages of people that actually plan on taking their own life and realizing like, whoa, that actually was not normal. And it's not okay that I was in that position and nobody was aware of it. And that's why I'm so vocal about it now, because I know there are people who are suffering and who are wearing a mask and putting on a happy face and pretending that everything is fine when deep down they feel like they have no options left. Yeah. And it's, it's the way, I I mean, and I'm going to speak from the position of a man because I think mm. it's sometimes there's even more stigma when men talk about mental health and and what they're feeling. Um, so I I I just want to say I super appreciate the the vulnerability and the sharing the stories and that's kind of what we're we're all about here. So um, I get that and I think that's kind of amazing. When you were a child and did you think that other people were feeling the same way as you, or did you think you were different? I definitely thought that I was different mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't recall meeting anybody who I thought was struggling the way that I was. And that, that probably made things feel worse for me because I felt like everyone else is doing fine and I'm like alone in this struggle. So I should just try and pretend that I'm fine to, you know, fit in with my peers and with my siblings and just, you know, it probably enhanced my desire to wear that mask and to not necessarily admit how I was actually feeling. Why do you think you were doing that? That's a good question. Um, Wow, I've never really thought about that before. I guess I 
wasn't at a place where I fully accepted what was going on internally for me. Um, so is everything kind of denial? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A kind of denial and a kind of like, I thought that if I spoke up, maybe it would seem like I was just looking for attention. And like, maybe, again, I didn't realize the severity of the situation until looking back years later. So I think it, at that time, I I tried to kind of almost wear that internal mask as well and tell myself like, no, I'm, I'm actually fine. Like, I'm totally fine. And if I admit that maybe I'm not fine, maybe I'll be seen as faking or as looking for attention or, you know, I, I didn't have the confidence to, to own how I was actually feeling or really admit it to myself even. And I guess I should ask, and maybe should have started with, with this, um, but what, what exactly is bipolar disorder? Yeah, that's a great question. So bipolar disorder, the major difference between major depressive disorder or depression and bipolar disorder is that we have this ability to experience both sides of the emotional spectrum. So depression is very much a low. And that's what I was really the deepest depression I've ever had was when I was 12 years old and did have those intentions to end my life. The other side of it is mania, which is like this abundance of energy, you're super high, like I've only experienced mania once, which is actually enough to warrant the diagnosis, which is when I was 19. Um, and it literally felt like I was on ecstasy, but I was completely sober, I barely needed to eat barely needed to sleep. I was speaking a million miles a minute, like I speak fast anyways, but I was speaking so fast, people couldn't understand me just like this overwhelming energy coming out of me that just needed to be released. And that is mania. At first, it's like things are too good to be true. And then it gets to the point where it's like, hey, no, this actually like, is not sustainable. And I need help in this moment. Okay. And during a, a mania, is it? Are you? Is this a break with reality? Or is it just kind of, I, I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to oversimplify probably, but or is it more of like a, an extreme hyperactivity? So for me, that's what it was. It was more of the extreme hyperactivity. For some people, mania can be really dangerous and you can experience delusions. Um, a lot of times you'll hear stories about people who have bipolar disorder. And when they're in that manic phase, you might be like, I can't lose and I'm going to go and gamble all my money because I just feel so good and I know it's going to be a positive outcome. And then they don't win the money back and they go get sent into like a deep depression because now they've just spent all their money. So these things can kind of play out in in you can have delusions and false beliefs. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen to me. And part of that is because at this point, I'd already been on a deep healing journey for a long time. When I experienced the mania, I was like, I know exactly what this is. My dad had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder a couple of years before that. Um, so at that time, my biggest fear was actually that I had bipolar disorder. And when the mania came, I was like, okay, I know what this is. I don't know what to do to calm myself down in this moment. So I did go to the hospital, but I was able to keep myself calm enough that I could be collected and say, Hey, I'm experiencing mania right now. I need someone to talk to. Um, I just want to help myself calm down. Okay. And nice. So sorry, Scott, but, uh, your dad was diagnosed a couple years prior as bipolar. Yes. Okay. Now I'm going to ask, this is, a, I hope this doesn't come off as insulting because it's not my intention at all, but mania sounds, your mania sounded kind of fun. Was it fun? Straight up, if I could be hypomanic, so like not full-blown mania, but hypomanic all the time, I absolutely would be. And I've talked to other people with bipolar who agree because it is just this like 
It feels like an abundance of energy. It feels like I can do anything. Things are just too good to be true. It's like you notice everything's a little bit brighter. You just notice like the goodness in every little thing and you notice all the little miracles around you. It's like, it's that opposite lens from depression. You know, when you are experiencing depression, it's like everything's a little bit gray and you notice all of the negatives around you. Whereas when you're experiencing at least a mild form of mania, it's like these rose colored glasses and it's like you're in love with life and everything's amazing. But it gets to a point where it's not sustainable. And for me, I experienced about two or three days of like really enjoying it, really loving it, high on life. And then it got to the point where I couldn't have a conversation because there was just this overwhelming emotion trying to pour out of me. I couldn't stand still. It's like I needed to just be moving and crying and not out of sadness, just out of like, whoa, I'm overwhelmed with this energy and emotion. And that's when I was like, I need to go to the hospital because this isn't, this is not okay right now. (laughs) And then, so what's the treatment for that while you're at the hospital? So I told them right away, um, basically, I don't want to be put on medication. That's not the route that I want to take. Um, The reason, like a big trigger for me at that time was that I was in university. I was about to enter my third year and I was going on exchange to New Zealand. So my flight was on Tuesday and the day that I went to the hospital was the Sunday. I was so excited. This was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in my life. So that's where this trigger kind of came from. They gave me three days worth of medication, one for the Sunday night so I could sleep, one for the Monday and one for the Tuesday to take on my plane on the way to New Zealand. Um, But by the time I was leaving the hospital, I had already I was there for about seven hours and I had already like expelled so much energy. I wasn't again, I wasn't really eating. I hadn't sleep in sleep. I hadn't slept in a few days. Um, So while I was there, my episode kind of like came to a halt and I just entered like a really, I had a really intense migraine by the time I was leaving. I could barely keep my head up. It was like my energy was just fully depleted and I needed to just go home and go to sleep. The normal course of action would have been, here's a prescription that you take every day indefinitely. And I was very adamant about not wanting that. And the psychiatrist I saw was really lovely. I was like, I'm going to respect your wishes and let's just get you safely to New Zealand and you can revisit things if you need more help later on. Well, it's nice to know that seven hours in the American healthcare system can like really just ruin anybody's hope. Canadian. Ah. <laughs> well, you fucking ruined my joke. <laughs> but that does explain your general niceness demeanor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for the aboots. Um, but what it, I mean, is so is bipolar disorder is it kind of on a a, a, a spectrum I, I don't know if spectrum is the right word but it, at what point i guess does it go from that okay things are things feel good right now to being a a, a problem um that i mean are there there's different levels of mania it sounds like mm-hmm. yeah just as there are different levels of depression i mean people can live with high functioning depression where it's like you feel the weight of the world on your chest and you feel that grayness and you have a hard time getting out of bed and being motivated, but you can still get through your day versus the kind of depression that's so crippling that you literally cannot get out of bed or think about, you know, moving through the day. Mania is the same, that there are, there are different levels. And I like to talk about the majority of my experience being that hypomania. It's like a very mild form of mania that I was still functional. I was still able to go about my day and, you know, drive a car and do the normal things. Whereas when I was experiencing that, that proper mania, I 
I could tell because I'm very self-aware, I was not in a place where I was able to function normally. And I was like, this is, you know, if I can't stand at work and have a conversation with a customer without feeling like I need to run outside and cry for no reason, I need some help right now. And that was kind of the difference. And realistically, the next, like the first probably month or so that I was in New Zealand, I was experiencing mild, mild mania, but it wasn't so much that I wasn't able to sleep or eat or any of these things. I was able to still function normally, but kind of with this like rose colored tinge on and with a little bit more energy than Mm -hmm. maybe my normal baseline. Okay. And it's not his story, but is that similar to your dad's experience or is his different? That's a great question. So his, he was diagnosed much, much later in life. Um, He was in his fifties by the time that he was diagnosed. um, And he had gone through a really dark depression right before that. It was very, um, he was very on edge all the time. And it was almost like, it wasn't the kind of depression where he, he needed to just be in bed all the time. It was like, almost this weird combo of like feeling really negative, but having all of this really heightened energy, um, which is something that's potentially more common with bipolar because it's kind of getting both sides of the coin at the same time, high energy, but really low mental state. Um, So that was really when he hit his, his rock bottom. And that's when he was finally diagnosed, but it was again, years later in life. And I don't, I don't know that he experienced deep depressions, early on the way that I did, or at least that he's spoken to and, and accepted and reflected on. Yeah. Well, and you said that you were afraid of being diagnosed because your dad had, was it just the knowledge that it was possible or were there things you saw in him that, that frightened you? Yeah. So a big part of my mental health as a child, and probably also a big part of the reason why I didn't feel comfortable speaking up about what I was going through was my dad and I had a really rocky relationship um, we were both undiagnosed with any anything to do with mental health. We weren't aware that it was a thing, but we are very similar in personality and we were both very stubborn and we butt heads a lot. So we didn't really get along when I was growing up. And he used to have big temper tantrums and he would throw things and, you know, he never hit me, but it was a very emotionally abusive relationship at times. Um, and I've totally forgiven him. We're like best friends now because I understand he was sick and he was struggling and that was coming from this place of sickness. But when he was diagnosed with bipolar, I was actually diagnosed with ADHD, which was my first diagnosis about four months later, which I don't know how we missed that for 18 years because it seemed very (laughs) obvious looking back. Well, I was diagnosed at 44, so 43. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I received that first diagnosis, it did become my biggest fear that I also had bipolar disorder because of the way that my dad and I treated each other when I was growing up, I had this fear that I would become this person who had temper tantrums and yelled at my children and all these things that I saw in my dad that I did not want to become. Why do you think he got help? He really needed it. He was really, um, he was really struggling at the time when he, when he finally did get help and he'd been on a healing journey for a long time. He took different things like a course in miracles. Um, and you know, he really wanted to become a better man and a better husband. He quit drinking for years. Um, but it always kind of went in waves and then all of a sudden he would be drinking again and you know, the tantrums would come back and you know, healing journeys. Um, but when he finally got the help, it was because he really, he really was at rock bottom and, and needed, needed that help. 
Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't like talking about other people's stories who aren't here, but obviously this is very intertwined with yours. Mm -hmm. And I, I is, so is, 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 is it her, her bleh, I can't talk <laughs> is bipolar disorder hereditary then? It is absolutely. Yes. And the good news there is that, so we know my dad's been diagnosed. I've been diagnosed. We strongly believe that his dad was undiagnosed and his dad as well. Um, so we know this has been passed down through the family. Thankfully, it doesn't seem to have affected either of my brothers. And I don't think either of my dad's brothers or sister either. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, um, I'm very confident that because the work I've done in this lifetime, because of the healing that I've done to shift my mind and to really find healing, that I'm not going to be passing it on to my children. So I've kind of broken that chain and the work that my dad's done too, because they go hand in hand with us mending our relationship. Um, yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because as someone who has no experience here, I would think, well, if something's hereditary, it's hereditary. And the actions that we take, I have, I, I, that just, I have a hard time seeing how that keeps it from being passed to the next generation. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is hopefulness, but it's also <laughs> epige epigenetics is a huge thing. So we, our genes are constantly shifting and changing based on the way that we go about our life. You know, like obesity is hereditary, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everywhere back in the family chain, there was obesity. It may have started somewhere and been passed on and continue to be passed on, but that can still be broken with lifestyle and a variety of factors okay. and not passed on. So mental health is similar. And for the most part, if, if people are maybe not as aware and maybe not doing the deep work to really find healing, mm -hmm. it's very easy to pass on your mental health genes. But I know for me, like my, my whole life, all of my number one priorities are about healing my mind and about checking in with myself and making sure that I'm not going too far in either direction because I've experienced the depths of it. I've experienced as high as it gets and I never want to be in either of those places again. So every day I'm doing things to really find that healing, to really change my mind. And I think in that way, because I know I'm never going to experience either side again, I know that I have the tools to stop myself from going too far in either direction. I'm very confident that that's what I'll be passing on to my children is more of that calm baseline and as well as the tools to manage if things are going in either direction. Is this in... I, I would like to say I'm more educated on it than I than I am, given that we're doing these interviews every week. But is this what people are referring to when they talk about like generational trauma? The, the passing exactly, okay. exactly, yeah. So this is essentially what I'm doing, and what my dad is also doing is healing that intergenerational trauma, so that we don't have to to pass it on anymore. We're breaking that chain. Yeah. If so, if you are a parent or self aware. What are you looking for to to understand if someone is being uh, affected by bipolar disorder? Someone that's not me. Um, well, it it, it could be for, anyone, for, but if you're a parent, a listener, it's a friend. Um, for a listener, what are you going to look out for 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 your kids? Mm -hmm. is, that, is that right, Scott? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think really tuning into their emotions. And, you know, looking back and reflecting on it, when I was a child, I had really big temper tantrums. And I think they would probably go from zero to 100, just like that. And I think, to some degree, that's normal. 
But to the degree that I experienced them, I don't think that was normal. And I think my parents likely were just like, oh, she's just, you know, a bratty child who gets upset. But it was a lot deeper than that. And I think going with an open mind and really like listening to what your child is saying, if they're experiencing this really deep emotion that seems to be way out of proportion with what's going on, maybe there's something else going on there. Maybe there's something deeper. Maybe they really are experiencing something deep. And it's not just that they're overreacting at a surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's the biggest thing for, for kids and just really listening to, to what they're saying and, and what they're experiencing. My family and I didn't really, we didn't have a close relationship where we would talk about what was going on in our lives. You know, we would have dinner yeah. together sometimes, but it wasn't, it wasn't like every night we sat down at the table together and said, how's your day? Most evenings I was spending time alone in my room, um, you know, doing whatever I was doing that my parents really had no idea about and that I would absolutely lie about if they had asked me because they had no way of knowing. Well, so, and and I was going to ask that, and it sounds like it's something that you probably have to start pretty early with is creating a safe space for your children to, to speak with you because you did say that you were masking and you, you had depression and um, the tantrums, but aside from that, I mean, would, would you say that, things were normal or would, would you have considered yourself normal ish, uh, at least in appearances? Were you getting good grades? Were you playing sports, acting, I mean, singing, doing the things that kids do? Yeah, I was absolutely. And I think again, from an outside perspective, it would have looked absolutely normal. But I think that if, if specifically if my parents had been more emotionally available and really like tried to dive into conversations with me, they would have learned that I was not okay. And, you know, so the, the suicidal thoughts and planning happened when I was 12. And then that kind of morphed into an eating disorder when I was 14, 15. And I was very unhealthily skinny. Like I was the same height that I am now and 20 to 30 pounds lighter than I am now, which I do not have even 20 pounds to lose. So it was, it was unhealthy. Um, And they, if we'd had dinner together, if we had been more vocal about, you know, what was going on in our lives, maybe that could have been noticed because that was all I was focused on at that time was trying to, to lose more weight. And I was running and I wasn't really eating. And, um, because we didn't have that common ground of, you know, having a meal together or, you know, I'd make my own lunch, which was normally some celery and carrot sticks. Um, and I would just have a cup of tea for breakfast. If they had been kind of more tuned in and open to conversations, they might have noticed that I was really struggling. And that was coming from this place of, anxiety, this place of deep self-love, um, and, and this place of not, not having that safe space to express myself. Now we skipped over a lot in your childhood and, um, how did you get, you know, did you have any help becoming less suicidal when you were 12? Like what, what did it take to just not be depressed and in that funk at that time? Yeah. So reflecting back on that, I actually cannot think of a pivotal moment when I decided I'm not going to act on it. I know that I did keep my, my plan was sleeping pills that were, um, you, they're not meant to take them below the age of 18 kind of thing. And I had a whole bottle that I was prepared to take. Cause I used to, I struggled with insomnia and I took children's sleeping pills every night back when I was 12. Um, I kept that bottle actually until I went to university. And when I returned home that Christmas and started, um, cleaning out my old closets and things like that, I found you know, my supplies and a box of letters I had written to my family and all of these things. And I was like, whoa, like I haven't looked at this stuff 
in years. And that's probably when I realized this was really real. And that's really scary that nobody was aware. Um, because I actually, I don't remember a pivotal moment when I decided I'm not going to do it. I know there were days when I was like, tonight's going to be the night. And I don't know exactly what stopped me. Um, I'm so grateful that I never actually attempted. How, how long was this period of your life? A few months, at least. Um, again, I don't remember exactly a pivotal moment. I do remember at one point um, having a cut on my wrist. And that wasn't something I did regularly. I did it maybe once or twice because I had, I had heard that maybe it was helpful for some people or that, you know, I was trying to feel something when I felt numb. And I remember being in gym class and changing. And one of my best friends noticed. And I kind of like made a joke about like, oh, yeah, I accidentally like broke my mirror, like it slipped kind of thing. And, and we just kind of wrote it off. And the next day I told her, like, you know how I, I told you that was an accident? I was, I was lying, basically. And she started crying. And that was a moment when I was like, whoa, like, this human really cares about me. And if I do this thing, it's actually going to affect people beyond just me. So that was definitely a pivotal moment of realizing, like, oh, like, someone does love me. Yeah. And maybe I'm being selfish by wanting to end it. You know, I, I just want to take a moment to recognize that part about depressive episodes is when people look at de depressed people, or I, I put that, I did air quotes. I did it the wrong part. De depressed people as weak, uh, mm -hmm. mentally weak. I think that that's a stigma that's going away, but I think it's been there in the past. I always say that people who are depressed are some of the strongest fucking people we know. They get out of bed for other people. They get, they, they do so much for other people. And sometimes that's not enough. Um, sometimes that they don't get past that. And I'm so glad that you've been able to. Um, so I guess kind of my point here is, you know, give people grace, but also check in on, on, on the people you love because just sometimes that's what people need. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's incredible. And I mean, it's years later and it's a moment that you remember. And yeah. I'm so glad that you it, it did experience that leading up to this point where you were planning. Is that something that you had thought to prior to this point or did you just kind of get there and start planning? I don't think that I had really considered it until the means presented themselves is really what happened. And I was like, Oh, Hey, there's an easy out. Mm -hmm. um, and then that was kind of the fixation was like, I could, I could end it and it really wouldn't be that hard. Um, and I think, you know, part of that was like, I mentioned, I had the insomnia. I used to take these sleeping pills every night and I was running out of them. And the ones I would take, I took, two pills every night. They were very small. And it was like sleep and two letters. Um, let's call it AB. Sleep AB was the pill. And I was running out of it. So my mom went to the pharmacy, um, you know, thinking she was doing the best she could. My child was having trouble sleeping. We'll give her medication um, and bought what she thought was the same thing. But it was actually sleep BA. The letters were flipped. And, you know, me not thinking about it, I opened the jar and I'm like, oh, these are bigger than normal. Like I normally take two. I'll just take two. And I'm this naive 12 year old, not really thinking about it. And I remember lying in bed and feeling legitimately high. Like I remember looking at the ceiling 
And all of a sudden the ceiling was like right in front of my face. And I like screamed and shut my eyes and opened my eyes and things were just weird. Like I, this was doing weird things to me. So I read the bottle and it said adults 18 and over take one pill nightly. And that's when it kind of hit me like, whoa, if I took this whole bottle of pills, I would probably just fall asleep and never wake up. And that sounds like a great idea. And so that kind of became my, my means. And I don't know that I had thought about it before that. I knew before that I was definitely unhappy. I was definitely mm-hmm. struggling. Um, you know, the insomnia was one of the symptoms of my um, depression and anxiety that I was experiencing. Um, but I don't think I'd really considered it because there was no, I hadn't thought about going to jump off a bridge or anything like that. Okay. And I just, I think I just have one more question about this specific part of your life. Mm-hmm. When you thought about it, did it scare you? That's a really good question. Did it scare me? I mean, I think there was obviously an aspect of fear or I might have acted on it, but I think there was a part of me that was like, I was afraid for my little brother. I was afraid because my dad and I relationship was so bad and theirs was, was all right. Um, I normally kind of got in the middle of it um, to kind of take, take the wrath, if you will. Um, I was afraid for what would happen to him if I wasn't there. And I was afraid for, I guess, how that would affect the people around me. Um, I don't know if I thought about that super consciously. I know I thought about my brother and what, his life would be like if I was no longer there as his like protector, if you will. Um, so that's probably where the fear came from more than a fear of what was going to happen to me. I wasn't very afraid of like the me aspect. I was ready to no longer be in the existence of being a human. So still, even in that moment, it was more about the relationships and the people around you and than it was not doing this for yourself right yeah well yeah absolutely and depression man if you haven't been through it it's it i i know i go through mild depression when i have had a level that scoots past mild i don't know any ways to really describe it other than like heavy Mm -hmm. um uh, painful. I, and these are, I have had days just, and it's literally been single days where I feel like there's this squeezing of my brain, like a weight on my brain that I can't fucking describe. And I don't know that I could do three days that way. One day is just like the most miserable thing that I could ever imagine or describe. And to live life in that manner, to have that two days, three days, weeks, months. I cannot fault people for their brains going in that direction. Yeah. I mean, if you were an ex- ever, most people can understand if you're, if your leg is an inscru- excruciating pain every single day, I think people can relate to that more, but there are some kinds of pain that are just, to to have to go through over and over and over is is something that I couldn't wish on anyone. So um I'm so glad that that you're not there today and I I guess when you have bipolar disorder do you always have bipolar disorder? Does it is this something that you you will consider yourself um bipolar until 
until you die? I mean, I know that it's always going to be a journey that I'm on and that I just need to be more conscious of where my thoughts are, where my mind is, of where my energy is. Um, and I think that will, that will continue forever, but it's already, you know, I was diagnosed at 19 and I'm 27 now and it's already gotten so much easier to manage because I, I keep up with my practices that I know keep me level and I monitor my thoughts and I, I do, you know, my self care routine is really my number one priority. And a lot of that is making sure that I'm exercising and getting enough sleep and nourishing my body and all of these things okay. that I know affect my mind. But absolutely, I would say that I, I'm going to be a mental warrior for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, and, and you, you have a start... bipolar for life tattoo. <laughs> I don't, but I have, I have a neuron, which is oh, all nice. the nice. <laughs> you know what? I, I always love that some of our dumbest questions have great answers. Um, <laughs> not, not that that was a dumb question, Dan, but you know, it kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> so you just started talking about the things that I was going to ask next, which was mm -hmm. oh, my, my cat is pushing my microphone. So hopefully you can't <laughs> hear that. Um, but how are you managing today? Like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, such a great question. And it's it's honestly taken me years to find like a, a program that really works. But mm -hmm. like I said, my mental health is my number one priority. So I've created what I call my seven pillars of mental health, which okay. are it's basic self care, but it gets so under the radar in the way that it's actually related to our mental health. So that's exercise, sleep, nutrition, meditation and mindfulness, connection with nature, huge one, connection with other humans, and taking proper self care time to do whatever it is I need to do, which I love to take baths and just have like relaxing me time. And when I'm doing all of these things, I can be a totally high functioning human, not going in either direction of, of, of my emotions and um, living a happy life. And I notice when when any of the times over the past, you know, eight years since I figured out that I have bipolar, when things have started to slip, it's normally like, okay, well, I haven't exercised in a few days. Mm -hmm. And then I'm having poor sleep because I'm not exercising. And I've eaten junk food three days in a row. And now all of a sudden, I'm feeling crappy. And it's like, oh, I haven't reached out to my friends in a while. It's like, when you start to drop the pillars, that's when the negative mental states can start coming back. But when I'm doing all of these things, and you know, this isn't necessarily wasn't the starting point for me. There was a long journey of like accepting my past and coming back to self-love and all of these things that I actually teach clients how to do. Mm -hmm. But this stuff, my seven pillars are the maintenance that I'm doing every single day. Yeah. And I will say when we talk about like treating things holistically without meds, that type of stuff, um, it's not something that I'm super familiar with. And, you know, there are extremes that can be kind of out there that I'm like, eh, what, what? I'm not so sure that's for me, but if it works for you, that's great. What I will say is when you talk about yourself, seven pillars, it's very relatable. And in, in that I notice the same things when I'm not mm -hmm. exercising, which is often <laughs> um, when my diet is bad <laughs> again, way too often, those types of things not doing them have a snowball effect and yeah. I can't help, but like I struggle Carly with, with, with all of this and mm -hmm. I can't help but notice when I wake up in the morning and take my dog for a walk that I feel so much better to start my day, yeah. but way too often I'm able to say, 
let them out in the backyard and then I'll take them for a walk later. And I don't know that you have an answer, but how do you get past that part? I mean, so much of the stuff is in my brain. I know that I, mm-hmm. and, and to, be, to be fair, I've, I've been struggling with long COVID and I need this more now than ever. And it is harder now than ever. So how do you take that first step? Yeah. And the thing that's hard about these practices is that when you need them the most is when they're the hardest. It's when you're experiencing those hard days and you're like, I really need to exercise and I just can't make myself do it. And building those habits and building, you know, a lifestyle around the things that you know are healing for you is really where it starts. And it's, it's taking it day by day and finding the motivation can be hard. If you're thinking like, uh, 20 minutes of exercise, that sounds like a lot, but it can start with something as simple as, okay, I'm not going to actually take my dog for a walk. I'm just going to put his leash on. I'm just going to put his leash on and then maybe, okay, maybe I can, I can step outside and kind of breaking it down in these little steps. Cause maybe by the time his leash is on, you're like, all right, well, let's just screw it. Let's go for a walk. Let's do it. And then you feel better afterwards. I which is simple in, in theory. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling emotions right now. <laughs> and the reason I am is because it is hard, but you're reminding me of things that I've learned for myself is that, I always used to say, if I can get my gym shorts on, I'll work out. And I've lost that. I've lost that. And lost your gym shorts or your ability to get them on. uh, I, I, you know, I'll get you some shorts, Scott. Maybe it's a little more of the latter. Um, (laughs) You know, it's also about finding ways to bring these in, in ways that don't feel like a chore to you. Like if, if my main form of exercise was going for a run, I would never do it because I don't enjoy running. I'm like, that's not fun for me. You need to find ways that are actually like inherently joyful for you. And, and also recognizing like if it's exercise, recognizing the moments in your day where you're already exercising or where there's opportunity for a little bit more, like parking further away at the grocery store and just adding in those little bits and giving yourself that grace that you are trying Thank you. I feel like this episode is for me right now, not for our listeners, because uh, I'm really at a point where I need a lot of this for health reasons. And mm-hmm. I did get a dog to help me. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to run either. And then I ended up getting the laziest fucking dog you can ever find. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it literally took like this morning. We we've done a couple interviews today and the first one uh, I thought I was going to be late for it because it took us like 25 minutes to get around the damn block. Um, part of it was him going slow. Part of him was he was in one of his moods where he wants to sniff every damn thing. Mm-hmm. And I got him as a senior dog. So I haven't like he's not being trained. He's he's just living out his golden years. And he's I ain't going to tell you. him what to do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so. I love this though. I, I, I know you said you've got uh, uh, something to that our listeners could download. And I think I need to download some of this. Um, where can they find you? What, where, where, where do you have a website, social media? What kind of stuff you got for us? I do have a website and yes, I have a guide that's called the first step towards overcoming anxiety. And it's, it's all about essentially cultivating self-love, which really, like I said, the seven pillars are the maintenance, mm-hmm. but okay. before those things become easier to implement, it's about cultivating the self-love, returning to your why, choosing that 
you know, you're worthy of healing and making that decision every day. You know what? I'm worthy of healing. So I need to show up and take my dog for the walk because I know it's going to be good for me. And when you have that self-love piece and you return to your why, it becomes a lot easier to do the things that are going to be healing for you. Carly, yeah, thank so, you. I, I'm I'm just I I am oddly emotional hearing all of this stuff because I'm resonating again. I you know when Dan reads the beginning and says when Scott Scott's wife uh, Scott Scott his wife's <laughs> fiance and his yeah. wife, her wife's boyfriend walked into a bar. I was in an abusive marriage, and how did I get there? By putting everyone else first, by not giving myself. Yeah the the love that I needed and there it wasn't that I disliked me it's just that I didn't prioritize me and it's been kind of something that I've done my entire life and all of this is just incredibly helpful and again I feel this is I've we have emotional episodes I don't feel like this stuff is as emotional right now is a lot of the stuff we've talked about but it's like oh shit this is hitting really hard right now. And, and, and thank you so much. Um, Carly, is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to say? Um, tell our, our listeners bef- before we uh, start moving on and to the end. Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you, Scott, for your vulnerability. I find it really courageous when people are open to showing emotions and admitting and accepting what they're feeling. So thank you for being open and honest and vulnerable with that. And um, for for you and for all of the listeners, just knowing that you can heal. You are worthy of healing. It takes coming back to that self-love piece mm. and choosing that you want to move forward from a place of loving yourself, from a place of wanting to be the best version, to be the healthiest version, to be the most healed that you can be. And you are more than capable. So I don't think I mentioned my website, but it is www.manasmastery.com. Manas is M-A-N-A-S, mastery just as it's spelled. And you can find my freebie on there, the the guide, the first step towards overcoming okay. anxiety. Um, I'm also on Instagram at manas.mastery. Okay. And both of those will be in your picture profile at the in the show notes. Yep. Beautiful. We will create that. We will share it. We will make sure that people follow. Dan and I and uh, will give you a follow as well. Well, I will. I guess I shouldn't speak for Dan. He tends to do that, though. But anyway, Carly, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really lovely conversation. Yeah, for sure. And and as always, I'm I'm honored and humbled and so happy that that you've been here and shared and with your own vulnerability as well. You mentioned mind, you're absolutely living and modeling that and it's been great. Um, listeners, just want to remind everyone to follow us as well, not just Carly. We are on the socials at Positively Terrible. Uh, you can contact us via email at podcast at positivelyterrible.com. And as always, today has been absolutely, positively terrible. I met you back at Tonicafest. I confess I was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the best. I was right. And that night we got into a water gun fight that I won. I shot you in the face. It was fate. I offered you a spring. You declined. I said, keep it to night. Decide to
Positively Terrible is a part of the Terrible Podcast Network.